following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. It's 1945, and post-war Germany is in disarray. The Allies have won the war, and it's, you know, it's time to take stock. And uh, by take stock, I mean sift through all the Hitler-Nazi garbage left by the garbage-ass Nazis. Nazis are shit. The Allies are trying to set things right, kind of, by returning all the shit the shitty Nazis plundered. While also, maybe, you know, getting some shit for themselves. Amid all that mess, one man asked a question that sparked a search for the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire. And, you know, the Spear of Destiny. That's a spear tip that legend claims to be not only the one that pierced the side of Christ, but uh, also allows anyone that possesses it to rule the entire world. So, it'll be a race to find it all before, you know, maybe it disappears into a dark underworld of stolen goods. Or worse yet, taken apart for all of its, uh, you know, jewel parts and then... Had the, all that gold melted down. With a cast of weird and shady characters standing in the way of their discovery, General Patton and Eisenhower give a lieutenant named Walter Horn the order to find it all. And in only 21 days, the clock is ticking. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Fire. <sighs> Welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week, a podcast that would like to remind you that every man likes to keep his crown jewels in the ecclesiastical treasury. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. That tagline, uh, that tagline was brought to you courtesy of the one and only Pixie, who is but one of the wonderful hosts of Next on Stage One, a podcast about the wonderfully spicy world of stripping with her amazing co-host, Mr. J. Join them as they regale listeners with stories, experiences, and anecdotes from the seldom revealed world of adult entertainment. Who doesn't like nudie, nude naked people and they're dancing and entertaining recently they did a breakdown of various terms used between adult industry sex workers and being former strippers themselves they bring a first-hand knowledge perspective and clarity in every episode it really is fascinating to listen to it's truly a wild ride every single time listen and subscribe to next on stage one anywhere you get your podcast from right now go 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 right now well okay wait after you finish this episode, you know, but then right after this is finished, you know, seriously, go, go now, you know, now back to your regularly scheduled book murdering by me under the watchful eye of Bob Stratos. I decree that the book this time around is Hitler's holy relics. I don't know why I mentioned Bob Stratos figure to you, but, but I just happened to look up and there it is. It's a Funko pop figure of Stratos, the character from He-Man. And he watches over me while I, you know, shout obscenities into this microphone. It's a little insight into my work area slash corner of my kitchen that you're currently hearing the audio that I, or the, the words that I spit into the microphone uh, in that corner. Those are all words. Promise. Oh, and if you're a Patreon subscriber, why are you listening to this here? You unlock the extended edition. It's, uh, it's got the bonus stuff. 
you know, go hear more already. Done. Did the Patreon thing. And if you're not part of the Patreon thing, you should be. So you should join that too. Sorry. Uh, I've been having a crisis of confidence lately and uh, just really been shitting on myself. So I haven't been really been uh, doing the podcasting stuff, which I goddamn need to do. Uh, I guilt trip myself a lot and it's a lot of procrastinating, uh, kind of a self-deprecation uh, loop. I don't know. It's really hard to explain, but that's where I end up. And that's why it takes me so fucking long between these episodes. I beat myself up a lot. I don't understand why. Uh, the book this time around is Hitler's Holy Relics. It's a bizarre tale about a man with the unique and unfortunate name of uh, Hitler Holy and his quest to replace his copy of the Pink Floyd uh, 1971 compilation album Relics. His copy was destroyed in a freak fire involving a tipped-over bong. Mostly, this story is a nod to the James Joyce Ulysses book, uh, you know, story. But but instead of a Dublin pub crawl, it's uh, L.A. record stores in the 1990s. The story reaches a climax, with Holy expounding on the idea that post-punk really began not with the release of Public Image Limited's song, Public Image. It's the debut single from their debut album, First Issue. But it was instead birthed in the early works of Devo, and merely influenced Public Image Limited. His explanation relies on conjecture regarding a meeting between John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, Richard Branson, uh, that's the guy who founded Virgin Records, and the members of Devo, the, you know, the band with the, the pots on their heads. Anyway, the meeting was an attempt to convince Devo to make Lydon their new frontman. Hitler Holy's rambling screed is delivered during an awkward scene involving the police, um, the band, um, and, and a birthday party clown from England, two waiters, and the police, the, the law enforcement kind, and Irish singer-songwriter Enya. And why uh, why did I take this way way further than any reasonable, reasonable person would have? I, I, I don't know. It made no sense what I, what I did. I told you what the book was about when, he, when we started. I don't know why I do this. It was so much gibberish, I almost vomited. Uh, actually, it's not all gibberish. The... The Johnny Rotten slash Devo meeting thing, that actually happened. But no, this book uh, this book is about finding the holy relics that Adolf fucking Hitler stole from Austria. What am I doing with my life? This is a non-fictional historical type book with a, with a weird shocker kind of Unsolved Mysteries dust cover. I know that's meant to drive sales, but it's really, it's an odd, it's an odd look. But it fucking worked on me because I love shit that looks like conspiracy weirdness. And when you couple that with Adolf Hitler, I mean, uh, this special brand of insanity, uh, you can't lose with it. So this one was written by Sidney D. Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick. I said that right, I think. This is the true story of the effort to recover the Spear of Destiny and the Crown Jewels of Austria, all of which were stolen by Hitler and his stupid fucking cronies. It's a ride. I seriously uh, didn't expect to take, but it was worth it. First... Sidney D. Kirkpatrick. What's his fucking deal? According to Simon & Schuster's official author bio, Sidney Kirkpatrick is an award-winning filmmaker, an international best-selling author, uh, and his critically acclaimed non-fiction books include A Cast of Killers, Turning the Tide, Lords of Saipan, Edgar Cayce, An American Prophet, and Revenge of Thomas Eakins. His documentary film, My Father the President, about Theodore Roosevelt, which I fucking have books about him fucking... Uh, weirdly enough, the whole Roosevelt crew, for the most part, it's really weird how I accumulate these books, and they all seem to fall under one kind of topic sometimes. Anyway, 
And I have a lot of fucking Nazi books. Why? I'm not a Nazi fan, but I end up with them. I don't get it. Anyway, the, do- the documentary he made is called My Father the President. It's about Theodore Roosevelt and it was as seen through the eyes of his daughter, Ethel Roosevelt Derby. It was a, a winner at the American Film Festival. HBO and the History Channel. I really wanted to say Hitler Channel. And uh, the Discovery Channel and A&E have all featured the work of Sidney Kirkpatrick. Biographical profiles of Kirkpatrick have appeared in the New York Times, Time Magazine, The New Yorker, and Playboy. He is a graduate of Hampshire College and New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He lives in Stony Brook, New York. Kirkpatrick is the father of Washington Post digital photo editor Nick Kirkpatrick, radio host Alexander Kirkpatrick, and the stepfather of filmmaker and artist Mercedes Thurlbeck. Thurlbeck. Yeah. He plays squash, he collects grave rubbings, and he rings church bells. What the fuck? This next little bit here is only in the extended edition available on Patreon. So I'm going to cue the cut. Editing. (laughs) 36-year-old First Lieutenant Walter Horn was one of 10 German-speaking U.S. 3rd Army interrogators with a broad chest and shoulders and dark movie star looks. And having recently immigrated to the U.S. from Germany, uh, that probably means he had a German accent, which didn't go over well, by the way, with his American Nazi-hating army brethren. It would have probably made him a hit with the ladies, though, you know? Uh, But he had an impatient wife waiting back home in San Francisco. Unfortunately, they were in the midst of getting uh, divorced. Um, This was likely why he was so devoted to the screaming and yelling of questions of prisoners. A, you can really vent some divorce-related frustrations out on some unsuspecting German prisoners. And B, why go back home to a wife who wants to leave you when you can scream and yell at German prisoners? It's practically a win-win. Probably not. The lieutenant was, as I previously mentioned, an interrogator. He was considered to be very skilled at it. He was damn good at his job, too. But you can't be any geek off the street to interrogate people. Nah, you gotta be handy with the steel, if you know what I mean. Earn your keep. Regulators, mount up! God damn it. How did a poorly quoted line from the movie Young Guns, later used by Warren G in his classic G-Funk rap track Regulate, show up in here? Pop culture damaged my brain. And probably yours too. Walter was considered one of the best. A member of a mobile intelligence unit commanded by none other than General George S. Patton, who had a whole movie made after him, his life, you know. Anyway, Walter's orders were to help ascertain whether Hitler would unleash chemical or biological weapons, maybe both, um, whether he would unleash them when the Allied army crossed the Rhine River into the German heartland. What was used to ascertain such highly important information that, you know, that could help save the lives of hundreds of thousands, and if it wasn't gotten, kill, uh, take the lives of hundreds of thousands and thousands of people. Um, A survey, of course. Yep. Uh, All right, maybe it wasn't quite like a survey, but, but as far as I can tell, it was a survey. Patton's mobile intelligence unit had prepared a detailed questionnaire to ferret out the truth from Nazi soldiers who were being questioned. Movies and TV have lied to you, 
No good cop, bad cop. No aggressive line of questioning. Nope. No quiet words being whispered to a suspect. And a few seconds later, they break down crying. None of that. Instead, you had to couch for relevant questions inside of 150 seemingly random questions. That's how the pros do it. And yes, it was 150 questions. Holy shit. If you can't beat them, you goddamn bore them. I think that's a Winston Churchill quote. So, I imagine it was something like, Question number 84. Have you or anyone you knew have ever been to a Christmas party that they weren't invited to? Just just fill in the uh, the answer there, like the others. Now let's see, now let's see here. Um, 85. Oh, um... Right. If you did attend such a party, were you compelled by either yourself or your friends to bring a present? It's okay, Gunter. Give it a give it a good think and uh, fill in the blank when you're ready. That, that's it. Oh, okay. Question eighty six. Where are the weapons, Nazi scum? Where are they? Where are Hitler's biochemical weapons? Uh, I don't know why, but I get a kick out of thinking that a lot of uh, army intelligence interrogations went something like that. And better still, if that's the technique they defined as being wielded by a skilled interrogator, like the top brass or watching someone through a two-way mirror while they're screaming at some poor bastard and they're saying to each other, God damn, he's good. Mm Mm-hmm. Damn good. He's the best. So 1,500 rank-and-file German soldiers that were captured in Belgium after the Battle of the Bulge were marched to Namur, for purposes of questioning, because tired boredom is even better than lengthy questionnaire boredom. Winston Churchill. On February 23, 1945, Horn had already interviewed 35 prisoners in his office, which, by the way, is a big damn stretch of the word office, as it consisted of only a couple of orange crates, a small desk borrowed from a nearby elementary school, and a stack of questionnaires and pencils. When a camp guard brought him 48-year-old Private Huber from the German 2nd Panzer Division, the guy looked a little thin and a lot beat the fuck down. His narrow face was distinguished by an enormous hooked nose. Jesus Christ! Does that fucking thing need a crate of its own? Your nose is ginormous, and I don't often use that word in polite conversation. Did your muta lose a bet with God or something? Did she fuck an anteater? You're a monster! No, he didn't say that. Any of that. Uh, But the guy did have a large nose, though. The book mentions that specifically, so... Kind of mean, Sid. Um... Oh, uh, he was also wearing the same uniform he'd been captured in three weeks ago, so imagine that smell for a minute. And then imagine that because of his nose, he probably smelled it twice as much. Zing! Heck, low-hanging fruit unlocked. Moving on now. Um... Though he was on the older side of soldiering at 48, it wasn't unusual to have older folks like him serving in the German military. After fighting a war for five years, the Nazi soldier pickings were getting kind of slim. So uh, they resorted to drafting fellas as young as 16 and as old as 60. Nothing builds confidence in a winning strategy like scraping the bottle of the barrel. You know what I mean? 
Though, I mean, when all the young, able-bodied fellas are dying from all the bullets entering and exiting their bodies and being, you know, blown apart from being too close to the explosives that have been exploding for years. After a while, you, you take what you can get. War, as Winston Churchill said, is not good for keeping your body together and alive for very long. <laughs> and let's face it, it sounds like something a Pulitzer Prize winning author would say. You know what I mean? Uh, no. No, he didn't. Uh, Private Huber. Private Private Huber, I, I don't know, it's German. It's got a umlaut pronunciation thing on over the U, so Private Uber, Huber, I don't know, the stanky, large-nostrilled soldier had received less than a month's training before being marched through snow into combat in Belgium, which is a long way from where he was recruited in good old Nuremberg. We'll talk about that place more in a little bit. Lieutenant Horn, an old prominent honker, badly in need of dry-cleaning Huber, Uber? Uber. How about Uber? Uh, they were sitting in Horn's shitty office, chatting over a cigarette and coffee, not helping the, uh, what I imagine was a pretty stank breath situation. While being uncomfortable on crates, Horn checked off Uber's answers to the ridiculous amount of questions, and uh, he did it quickly, getting nothing more than, you know, the standard yes, no, and I don't know. The interview was completed, and Horn was ready to dismiss the smelly bastard back to his smelly bastard friends, when Horn changed his mind. He looked at the tired, rank, big-nosed bastard sack of shit across from him, and felt bad. He offered him uh, another cigarette and a cup of coffee, because he figured, for a freshly defeated Nazi, cigarette coffee breath probably, you know, couldn't make things much worse, right? Then, in passing, he asked a Huber uh, if he knew anything that might interest Army intelligence, you know? And the guy looked like he wanted to cry. The prisoner told Horn apologetically that he could be of no help. Horn expected as much as Huber finished his coffee. He was going... Why I keep saying it like that, I don't know. Fucking hell. Huber. That's probably way wrong, too, but it's spelled H-U-B-E-R with an umlaut over the U's. Huber. Oh, but I don't know how to speak German. Anyway, he was going to signal, Horn was going to signal to the camp guards to lead a Huber back to the uh, prisoner enclosure. Then suddenly, the soldier's face lit up. Are you interested in art and antiques? Huber asked in a surprisingly non-German accent. Uh, Horn smiled broadly and answered, uh, does Churchill write shitty quotes? No, he didn't say that. He did smile, though. What Huber couldn't have known was that in civilian life, Walter Horn was an art history professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Or that years uh, later, before fleeing Nazi Germany, he had studied art history in Hamburg, Munich, and Berlin, and had earned his doctorate under the mentorship of the international internationally. Jesus Hilton the internationally renowned medieval scholar Erwin Panofsky and completed postgraduate work with Bernard Berenson in Florence, Italy. He was also a professor of art history at the University of Heidelberg before seeing the writing on the wall, you know, <laughs> the Nazis coming. And then uh, he told the Nazis to fuck themselves and that he skated off to the U.S. What do you know? Horn asked. 
The soldier sat up stiffly and addressed the lieutenant as if he was being debriefed by a superior in the German army. There's a hidden treasure in a bunker underneath the Nuremberg Castle. The hiding place is cut into the rock under the sandstone cliff. It's very secret. No one but Reichsführer Himmler. Himmler. His staff, a few ranking city officials and workers who labor in the bunker know anything about it. Under Himmler, you say? Of the SS, replied Horn. Hubert <laughs> nodded solemnly, adding that the bunker was deep in the castle's bedrock, but that its entrance tunnel um, was from outside on the street. This intrigued Horn, as he was a red-blooded human being. I mean, who doesn't like hidden entrances to secret bunkers? Answer this. If you were in a casual conversation with someone and they said, Oh, get this. The other day I was walking to the store... The, the, that store over there, yeah. And I was walking there, and I found a secret door. Guess what? It led to a secret bunker. Crazy, right? You would immediately ask why the fuck you aren't being led there right now. Walter asks Hubert to elaborate. Maybe tell me some more about secret stuff. You know, you big-nosed freak-smelling sack of shit. Okay, maybe he didn't say that. I kind of wish he did. Hubert explained that the entrance was camouflaged to look like the parking garage of an antique shop off of an alley in the old part of the city with a sign that read, Antiques, New and Old. Hubert discussed some of the vault's security features, described the layout and how it's guarded. Hey, 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 motherfucker. If this place is so secret, how, how the fuck do you know about it? I'm paraphrasing, of course. Because my family lives above the antique shop, bro. He didn't say that. But he did say uh, his family did live... (laughs) Because my family lives above the antique shop. My father is in charge of maintaining the ventilation unit and mother checks the art and artifacts for mold and insect damage. Hubert answered more or less. He said more, but, you know, paraphrasing. What kind of art is kept inside the bunker? Horn asked. Ah, prints by Abrak Dura, sculpture by Adam Kraft and Vyat Stosh, um, medieval books, maps, Renaissance musical instruments, shit like that. Paraphrasing. You get it. He also said that only Himmler and the Lord Mayor of Nuremberg, Willie Leibel, were ever permitted inside the vault room. What else is inside this room, you silly son of a bitch? An array of artifacts packed into wooden shipping crates. In one were a king's robes. Another had the word Maritus. Maritus? M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S. Fucking stenciled on the side. It had an ancient sword in it. The third contained a crown covered in uncut sapphires, rubies, and amethysts. Near that was a silver scepter and a golden apple tipped with a jewel-encrusted cross. Then, in its own leather case, resting on a red velvet pillow, was an ancient Roman spear point, which visitors to the vault, among them Himmler himself, referred to as the Holy Lance. Walter Horn then turned to you, the listener, and said, I should probably explain what some of this shit is and why it's a big fucking deal. Okay, he didn't, he didn't do that, but I, I should really explain. 
the Holy Lance was important to Hitler and his cronies for a weird reason. It is believed to be the spear tip used by a Roman soldier during the crucifixion to pierce the side of Jesus and ensure that he was dead. As a struggling artist in Vienna, Adolf Hitler visited the museum and had been captivated by the tour guide's tale of the Holy Lance, also known as the Hofburg Spear. One of the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Emperors, the Hofburg Spear was said to be the Spear of Destiny, used by the Roman legionnaire Gaius Cassius Longinus to pierce the side of Christ at the crucifixion. This great gilded lance, the guide told him, had been carried by Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, Frankish warlord Charles Martel, and a litany of German conqueror kings, emboldening them with its supernatural power. A gloriously overworked mess of steel, iron, and brass, the Hofburg spear is embedded with what was said to be uh, one of the nails from the cross, um, the crucifixion cross, capped with a silver band and then cloaked in gold sometime around the 14th century. Like the gaudy, false chalices at the climax of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it certainly looked the part, and its inscription went well out of its way to assert itself as Lance and Nail of the Lord. Hitler came in his pants hard. Or, or probably did. There's nothing, there's nothing that says he didn't. Just saying. Hitler wanted the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire too. This was to help solidify his claim of being Emperor of Europe and or the world. Since the emperors of yore were all crowned using them. In Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote that the imperial insignia, quote, were still preserved in Vienna and appeared to act as magical relics rather than as the visible guarantee of an everlasting bond of union. When the Habsburg state crumbled to pieces in 1918, the Austrian Germans instinctively raised an outcry for union with their German fatherland, unquote. This is why taking the spear and the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire and the rest of all that shit were important to Hitler and why it was one of the first things he stole after taking Austria. During the Anschluss, when Austria was annexed by Germany, Adolf Hitler immediately took the lance, and along with his seriously fucked up cohort, Himmler, they ordered it to all be brought to Nuremberg. Hitler wanted to use them to symbolically anoint himself as the true ruler over Europe. Himmler wanted the spear for freakishly stupid reasons. I mean, the Hitler thing's pretty stupid, but... Himmler's reasons were even more stupid. Namely, he wanted it to help kickstart the worst Knights of the Round Table King Arthur cosplay ever. The Lance, along with the Holy Grail, appeared together in many stories of the quest of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. This fucking idiot thought those stories were real and actually sent scientists on expeditions looking for the Holy Grail um, to couple with the Lance and use them to make what he believed possibly to be a... <sighs> group of superhuman Nazi knights. Fucking Nazis were fucking idiots. They were not the brightest or sanest of light bulbs. He was really into the occult, thinking that magic was an entirely reasonable way to become a world ruler. Himmler was one of the scariest idiots in a world-class team of scary idiots. According to occult legend, which Himmler was way, 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 way into, whoever claimed the spear and understood its occult significance held the destiny of the world in his hands. 
just as anti-Semitic philosophers who touted the racist lie about an Aryan master race and its end. This spear was claimed by Constantine the Great Justinian, Charles Martel, Charlemagne, and various German emperors, all supposedly men of Aryan destiny. So, in order to carry on that imaginary romance with fictional history, Hitler, kind of, and Himmler, super-believer, thought possessing the Holy Lance and using the crown jewels to pronounce Hitler Emperor-King would create a Reich Empire thing that would eventually lead to world domination. Because like I said before, Nazis are fucking idiots. And racist people are even more stupid pieces of shit. Just know that. So after getting as much information from Huber as to the exact location and contents of the secret bunker... Horn took his notes, borrowed a typewriter, and spent the rest of the night doing homework in the officer's mess, composing a detailed account of his interview. He figured it would probably end up buried in a slush pile of army intelligence, you know, confiscated porno and Captain America comic books, dismissed as unimportant, and never even given a proper, nice fucking story, Horn. No one gives a shit about you or your stupid crown jewels of who gives a fuck. Fuck off already. That was a little much, I think. Sorry. I digress. Horn also knew how improbable it would be that a uh, combat operations officer would recognize the recovery of the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire as a significant military objective. His background in arts, history, and academia compelled him to get the word out. You know, due diligence is due diligence. Yet for some reason... It was passed up the chain to General Patton's headquarters. Why? Because Patton also had a super boner for the Spear of Destiny. Like, if he had been standing next to Hitler that day in the museum, two guys would have come in their pants. The tour guide and other people on the tour, everybody would have been exchanging some awkward, disturbed-as-hell glances. Did those guys just... Yeah, 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 I think, I think so. Why are they looking at us? Man, man, why are you looking at them? Look away, man, look away! I'll move on again. I'm sorry. Five months later, Horn received orders to report to United States Forces European Theater Command Headquarters in Frankfurt, Germany. The contentious home of the fucking hot dog. People squabble over the dumbest shit. Do, do you give a shit where the hot dog came from? Just... For, okay, let's take a tiny little tangent here. Two German towns vie to be the original birthplace of the modern fucking hot dog. Frankfurt claims the Frankfurter was invented there over 500 years ago in 1484. Eight years before Columbus set sail for America, by the way. But the people of Vienna, spelled W-I-E-N, huh? Wiener, get it? Vien? That's how you spell it in German. They say they are the true originators of the Wienerfest. Towns, legit towns beefing over beef tubes. Son, throwing down phallic meat stick ownership gauntlet. Personally, I think Vienna should just let it go. I mean, come on. When you're the birthplace of Mozart, Beethoven, Sigmund Freud, and, and, Erwin, and Erwin Schrodinger, do you really need a fucking hot dog? Though Frankfurt does have Pope Francis, 
Martin Lawrence, yes, the comedian Martin Lawrence, and Johan Fook. To be okay, to be honest, I threw in Martin Lawrence and Johan in there to kind of fill out the list. Martin hasn't been famous, famous, you know, since uh, since he couldn't keep his hands off his fucking co-star, and and Johan's last name is spelled F-U-C-K, which I mean, fuck. Give up the phallic food, Vienna. Sorry. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Walter Horn took off for Frankfurt for a fuck Vienna hot dog eating contest. He lost last year, but this year, that footlong golden hot dog trophy is coming home to Walter, baby. Woo! Um, no. No, he went to the headquarters there, and uh, he was greeted and escorted to a room to speak with a major named Hammond. And he was given a file. Horn opened it and found naked pictures of his mother. Ah, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. How fucked up would that be? In my sick mind, I pictured a scene of like a 1940s office, kind of sparse. You can hear people mumbling down the hall and typewriters clacking off in the distance, you know. And and Horn is handed a, a file with naked pictures of his mother, you know. And Walter being disgusted and confused. Major Hammond kind of looking at him dead serious and saying... I believe we understand each other, Lieutenant. And Walter is like, What the fuck? Is this my mother? Why would you hand me naked pictures of my mother? What the hell is wrong with you? Then there's a pause, and the Major kind of stares at him, gets irritated, and says loudly, I believe the message is clear. Good day, Lieutenant. Get the fuck out of my office. Just just no context. (laughs) No fucking anything. Just handed naked pictures... Sorry, I'm an idiot. Um, no, he discovered his report uh, along with the interview with Private Hubert in his uh, in in the file folder. They found the bunker? Horn asked. It was right where Hubert said it was. The major replied. The major explained how Walter's report had climbed the ranks to Patton, who was not only a fierce and accomplished warrior. That's a quote from the book, by the way. But uh had an unrivaled knowledge of military history. Apparently, the art and artifacts of the ancient soldier kings of the Holy Roman Empire held a particular fascination for him. Because deep down, Patton wanted to dominate the world too. Military leaders are fucking weird. All the treasures found in the blacksmith's alley bunker were nothing less than the Third Reich's historic treasure room. Everything had a connection to Germany's more illustrious ancient past. Among the items in the room were the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire Hitler had removed from the Royal Treasury Kunsthistorisch Museum. I fucked that way up. I'm sorry, everyone in Vienna. Hitler had ordered them to be displayed in Nuremberg and presumably at some point after ordered them to be hidden in the blacksmith's alley bunker once the Allied bombers began raiding the city, dismantling it with bombs. Is the collection intact? Horn asked. That's the problem, Major Hammond said. Two of the 17 crates are empty, and one crate is missing from the vault altogether. Among the 30 items still in the vault were the king's robes, various royal ceremonial objects, and a priceless collection of ecumenical relics that belonged to the Holy Roman Emperors, including among them the Holy Lance. But missing from the collection were the imperial crown, globe, scepter, and two swords. Horn 
shuddered to think of the priceless treasures being ripped apart for their jewels, or worse still, a 500-year-old scepter getting melted down for its gold. But such crimes were not unprecedented. The black market thrived throughout occupied Europe. Still, you know, all that history melted down, recast as who the fuck knows what? That's a fucking tragedy. Yet, people are people, and in times of war and desperation, they'll do what they've always done. Whatever they need to do to survive. So what the fuck is the cultural value of historical jewelry if its perceived value can be traded for food I need to keep me from starving right now, right? U.S. occupation officers and GIs alike were happy to look the other way for a cut of the profits, too. In an intelligence report Horn had read, a priceless collection of medieval art and manuscripts had disappeared from an Austrian monastery into the hands of a ranking U.S. Army occupation officer. Another American official had been caught shipping Hitler's silverware and a gold-plated pistol to his parents' home in Brooklyn. To be fair, gold-plated pistols are kind of fucking badass. I mean, they do sound kind of sweet. Though, you know, where the gold actually came from, that might make you throw up. Hammond reminded Horn of what he had said in his report. The crown jewels were Europe's most valuable treasure. As such, Patton wanted to see the missing items, wherever they were, and whoever might have them, be returned to the collection. Eisenhower, too, Hammond said. He wanted to see the matter resolved as soon as possible, and had been given the authority to put Horn in charge of a special MFAA investigative unit, you know, otherwise known as the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Program. The Monuments Men. This particular unit, however, would consist solely of one guy, one Walter Horn. The investigation of the crown jewels was a delicate matter which had to be handled with great care because everyone wants their peace. But it's also to stave off any future Hitler-type assholes from doing future asshole things. When you start appropriating and fucking with other people's history-linked treasure stuff... You paint a revenge target on your back. The MFAA's mission was to try and lessen the likelihood of that happening by finding and protecting the cultural heritage of the Allied nations, while also preserving the cultural heritage of Germany, too. The vanquished were to be protected this time around. It didn't mean the Nazi fucksticks wouldn't stand trial or that reparations wouldn't be sought. But rather, the Allies, in principle would recognize that if Germany was to rise from the ruins, it not only had to be helped economically, but its cultural patrimony needed to be preserved for future generations. The MFAA was the vehicle to accomplish this. Horn knew from his work compiling dossiers for upcoming war tribunals that protecting and preserving Germany's cultural patrimony was a politically charged subject. Nothing had been decided regarding what constituted war reparations. Museum curators from the Louvre in Paris wanted German art and partial payment for art Nazis had lost or destroyed. Likewise, the Soviets and many Allied commanders, too, believed fair and reasonably that Germany repay war debt in any way it could. That included maybe handing over some of its cultural patrimony. Furthermore, there were numerous complications arriving from alliances that the Nazi government made with Italy and, Aust and the Austrian nation. 
as they provided both men and arms to the Third Reich's war machine. On top of that, many U.S. and British commanders shared the French, Belgian, and Soviet view that Hitler's wartime partners didn't deserve their fucking art and other assets in equal measure. They forfeited that shit when they sided with the losing team. All of this was still being figured out when the blacksmith's alley vault was found. Given the time and place, it was a Pandora's box from a historical standpoint. The crown jewels belonged to no one nation. However, to an almost empire that, like the, you know, the shitty Third Reich was, they were cherished symbols of the medieval concept of world government that began with the coronation of Charlemagne in the 8th century and ended more than 1,000 years later in the early 19th century when Emperor Francis II abdicated the throne following the military defeat by Napoleon Bonaparte. Horn didn't cross-examine Major Hammond to clarify precisely what interests Generals Patton and Eisenhower had in the recovery of the artifacts in the Nuremberg bunker, or whether or not they all wanted the same thing. Locating the crown jewels before repatriation discussions began in Munich was all that mattered. After that, it was out of Major Hammond's hands, he said. Horn's enthusiasm quickly faded, though. 21 days was all he was given to find the lost treasures in war-torn Germany. Even if he had help, it was a recipe for failure. He had spent longer sketching the interior of the dome chapel at the San Miniato Basilica. Three weeks? Horn asked incredulously. Patton and Eisenhower wanted to avoid what would potentially become a very embarrassing situation for the U.S. occupation government in Nuremberg. Word had gotten out about the find. The Polish ambassador had already filed a petition for the contents. The Austrians were already asking that the Holy Roman Empire collection be returned to them. The Major brought another equally urgent reason to Horn's attention. The treasures, as both Horn and Hammond knew, were symbols of world monarchy. This is why Napoleon had coveted them, and surely why Hitler demanded that they be brought to Germany. The removal of the Imperial Crown, Scepter, Orb, and Swords from the Blacksmith's Alley bunker, Hammond said, might be part of some neo-Nazi-led resistance plot to embarrass and undermine the Allied occupation. Horn promised to begin immediately. He had only to return to camp to collect his things. Hammond left him with another handshake and a thick file folder of military reports on the invasion of Nuremberg. The Major said that he would find Captain Paul Peterson's account especially interesting. A captain named John Thompson would update him on the rest when he got to Nuremberg. Major Hammond had only one thing to add. He said that Horn shouldn't count on anyone in Nuremberg bending over backward to lend him a hand with his investigation. Everything is not as it should be at Nuremberg's occupation headquarters, he warned. He was told that a jeep and a driver would be assigned to him for the investigation. It was here that Walter Horn met the second half of the Jewel Hunter duo. Waiting for him at the motor pool was Private Eugene Stoneblood Dollar, born in the Burmese jungle to American mercenary parents. He grew up on the fringe of the local village. His parents, though caring, were busy overthrowing local warlords, so Eugene was left to the care of an elderly, blind, mixed martial arts master. Trained from infancy, Stoneblood was a quick study, learning to be an efficient yet brutal hand-to-hand -hand kill machine. These skills would become ingrained in him and put to the test when his family relocated to the mean streets of Harlem, USA. Harlem, New York, in the USA. 
Growing up during an era of extreme racial tension and being a small white kid in a largely black neighborhood did him no favors. Though, through the use of his soft-spoken demeanor and deft, ninja-like skills, he earned the respect of the neighborhood, which eventually came to embrace him as one of their own. Soon the country was at war, and a young Eugene lied about his age so he could volunteer as soon as he could find a recruiting office. It was during his military training that Private Dollar earned the reputation of being a man, a few words, and a lot of action. One of his basic training pals later recalled that Old Stone Blood Dollar never spoke more than two words when only one punch would do. Now, deployed to a motor pool in Frankfurt, Germany, Eugene looked into the eyes of his destiny, one Walter Horn, and shook his hand. Did you buy any of that? Seriously, the only legit thing about all of that was that his name was uh, Private Dollar. Like, his last name was Dollar. Sorry if you got drawn in, but they, they, don't, they didn't give him much of a backstory in the book. With a, But with a name like Private Dollar, I couldn't resist. And in my demented brain, he was either going to be a fast type, you know, fist-wielding badass, or a male stripper. You know, like a military-themed male stripper. Think about it. Walter Horn meets Private Dollar, who is the uh, the driver assigned to him uh, for the duration of the investigation. Now, I should probably talk about that city, Nuremberg, for a second, as it plays a pretty big part in what we'll be getting into. The city was first mentioned in 1050 in official records as Nuremberg, you know, with a with an O instead of a U. Fucking huge difference. Anyway, um, it had its origin in a castle now known as Kaiserberg. Uh, it, was, it was built uh, 10 years earlier, roughly, uh, by the German king Henry III and the Duke of Bavaria, or something like that. Um, he became Holy Roman Emperor in 1046, so, you know, a couple of years before that. Um, the skyline is still dominated by a mighty fortress to this day. Um, archaeologists have concluded that there were pockets of settlers in the area from the prehistoric age onwards, but it was not until 1050 that... Nuremberg, uh, you know, the rock, Rocky Mountain uh, is what it means, I think, uh, was first mentioned in an official document by Emperor Henry III. Nuremberg is not situated near a big river or the sea, which is usually the hallmark of an important city. Still, despite its geographical location, it managed to become one of the most important medieval trading and craftsmanship towns. Why? Well, because, you know, some of the most important trading routes intersected there because people walked across fucking land, you know. And because so many people had lumped themselves together nearby and there was no city equal in stature in the surrounding area, it kind of became important. In 1356, the town received a further accolade. The so-called Golden Bull stated that new kings were obliged to hold their first parliamentary session in Nuremberg. A, a golden bull, or chrysal bull, was a golden ornament representing a seal, which was attached to a decree issued by Byzantine emperors and later by monarchs in Europe during the Middle Ages and Renaissance. The term was originally coined for the actual golden seal itself, but later became applied to the entire decree. Architecturally, this new decree and its affirmation of Nuremberg's importance was an epoch in which the famous Hauptmarket, or Main Market, um, the beautiful Church of Our Lady, the beautiful fountain, 
<laughs> which is, I don't know, that's what they mentioned. And the old town hall were built because, you know, shit started popping off in Nuremberg. Anyway, in keeping with its special standing in the eyes of successive emperors, Emperor Sigmund decreed that the imperial jewels were henceforth to be kept in Nuremberg. Those are the jewels that, you know, we've been talking about. They remained in the city until the late 18th century. This era saw Nuremberg reach its cultural climax. Some of the city's favorite sons, including the painter Albrecht Dürer, the humanist Willibald Perkheimer, P-I-R-C-K-H-E-I-M-E-R, Perkheimer, fucking Germans, and the mason Adam Kraft lived at this time during this time, and their work was praised throughout Europe. As ecstatic as Nuremberg's cultural heyday was, its downfall was all the more tragic. Repeated outbreaks of the plague and the adoption of Martin Luther's Reformation alienated the royal family from what was their favorite city for about 500 years. 500 years, half a millennium. Jesus. Moreover, Despite remaining neutral during the Thirty Years' War, Nuremberg continued to decline, with up to 40,000 of its citizens perishing because of starvation and other effects of the conflict. In 1806, after defeating Austria and Prussia, Napoleon rewarded his ally Bavaria by annexing cities in the area, Nuremberg being one of them, to its territory, to the Bavarian territory. Nuremberg which had once been the foremost of imperial cities, was reduced in status to become a mere province. How shitty. This pissed off a lot of people, but they had to forsake their civic privileges for Bavarian state law, which was a difficult adjustment. I mean, anyone who uh, is told they're important one day and then said, and then, you know, the next day they're like, no, you're, you're just as shitty as everyone else. No one likes the new asshole in charge. Because, you know, things change when that happens sometimes. Why not just let us be and keep your silly shit ways to yourself and let us keep living our silly shit ways to ourselves? But to the victor go the spoils or cities or whatever the asshole in charge prefers. Ah! Ah! But in 1835, things seemed to turn around for old Nuremberg with the coming of the Industrial Age. The first steam train made its way from Nuremberg. A few years later, the Germanic National Museum opened its doors. I don't have to tell you that before the advent of widespread literacy, the radio, TV, the internet, fun was pretty hard to come by. People, you know, made up games consisting of spinning in place and falling down and variations on hitting things with sticks or each other. So a museum is a welcome diversion from the constant hitting and, you know, staring at each other. One of its most popular exhibits is the Beheim Globe. Yep, you heard that right. People traveled far and wide to stare at a fucking globe. You, you remember that when you're stunned into paralysis by the overabundance of choice on Netflix. You could be anxiously standing in line waiting to stare at a large ball poorly drawn landmasses on it. The globe was made by Martin Behaim. B-E-H-A-I-M. He made that in 1492, the year Columbus discovered America, which (laughs) 
which just fucking ruined it, didn't it? I bet Martin was so pissed. He discovered what? God damn it. Now I gotta start all over. During this time, Nuremberg's cool, walled-in city coolness became a tourist destination of sorts. For those who saw it as a wonderful throwback to Germany's beautiful medieval glory days. Anti-Semitic composer and all-around dickhead Richard Wagner also composed The Master Singers as a tribute to the city. Then, in the first half of the 20th century, Nuremberg again acquired national and international recognition. Yet, the circumstances surrounding its status are not the most favorable. Why? Uh, I'll give you two guesses as to what asshole bunch made the circumstances unfavorable, but I think you'll only need one guess. Did you guess? Did you? Did you fuck? Did you mull it around? Roll it around the old noggin? Let it hit the sides? It was the fucking Nazis. It's always the fucking Nazis. If you did guess and your guess was Nazis, you get double the internet points. You can cash those anywhere inside your imagination and get whatever prize your brain deems you worthy of. In 1933, Nuremberg was christened the city of the Nazi party rallies. Because for wackos like Adolf Hitler, this was the town which had been connected to some of the most significant developments in German history. But also, Hitler's imagined conspiracy-laden history was attached to it as well. Even call, he even called it the most German city in Germany. Whatever the fuck that means. Couple all of that with a healthy dose of inflated, misconstrued nostalgia for the former German Empire and the patriotic sentiment Hitler figured uh, if he could connect his Third Reich to the uh, dynasty history stuff of Nuremberg and its lineage of royalty and German rulers or whatever, it would go a long way to legitimizing his own fucked-up dynasty. So as far as Nuremberg is concerned, when Adolf Hitler shits came onto the scene, uh, the Jewish community didn't take it so well. As you can imagine, it, it seems the notion of a raging anti-Semite taking charge made many members of the Jewish community, uh, big surprise here, really fucking nervous. I'm not sure how many uh, history buffs listen to this podcast, but uh, the the Jewish community back then in Nuremberg, they were pretty fucking spot on with that gut feeling. Because as you know, nothing raises the old hackles like a gangload of murderous assholes taking power and then very obviously, you know, uh, not only wanting to, but actually systematically exterminating your people who are exactly like yourself. The increasingly hostile political atmosphere in the presence of one Julius Streicher 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 was the Gao leader and editor of Der Strom 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 Der Strom it has a U with a umlaut the two little dots above it Der Strom it, it means the stormtrooper um, that guy also caused many members of the Jewish community in the region to uh, leave they emigrated. Der Strom was a weekly uh, German tabloid format newspaper. Think, uh, you know, the Weekly World News or, uh, I don't know, any full of shit newspaper. Um, he published that uh, from 1923 to the end of the Second World War. Think think of it as, you know, the think of it as the Weekly World News, but um, for hate-filled bigots and uh, shitty fucking Nazis. 
It was a significant part of Nazi propaganda, a very lucrative business for Streicher, and uh, made him a multimillionaire, which, I shouldn't have to tell you, is both disturbing and sad all the way around. Nuremberg's Republican civil tradition, that, along with a degree of liberalism that had characterized it previously, um, did not prove strong enough to resist the rise of National Socialism, or, you know, the Nazis. The Allied bombing raids of World War II, um, you know, to um, kill the Nazis, took their toll on old Hitler shitty's stupid racist fantasy come to life and city. And by 1945, over 90% of the historic old town of Nuremberg had been reduced to ash and rubble. Nuremberg is in this state when we meet up with it. And is at this point, I have to tell you a secret. This is going to be a two-parter episode. I fucking know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <sighs> I found this stuff so interesting. A lot of this stuff wasn't in the book. So I fucking, I, I added it and I just, I just over-dipped the well. So forgive me, please. Join me for the second half of Hitler's Holy Relics or... How a stupid murderous asshole named Hitler stole and scattered the cultural artifacts of entire nations and how one man had 21, 21, 21 days to get them all back. Well, some of them. Well, one tiny group of them. That's not the title of the book, but you get it. So until then, which will probably be in a couple seconds if you get this late, um, thank you for listening. Telton Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider contributing through Patreon, where you'll find the extended versions of this episode with a bunch of stuff that I had to cut out to make this an hour for, you know, the, the Spotify and stuff and Apple. Anyway, you'll find the extended versions of, the, of this podcast and uh, another podcast that I'm doing on Patreon. Um, or you can tip me on Anchor, I think. Uh, there's a little contribute thing there too every bit goes back uh, right back into this will have me kicking these out way sooner um but if you're not able to do if you're not able to do that patreon and stuff um give it a five-star review on your favorite app that's always free and easy to do and it helps uh, people find the podcast spotify is the easiest you just click on five stars and it whoop, goes through it only takes a minute or two, and it really does help. You can also follow the podcast on social media and stuff. I'll leave the uh, links to all this stuff in the description. Or you can just search for Elton Reads a Book a Week. Um, you know, I don't know how you're hearing it without doing at least one of those things. I don't know. But uh, if you search for Elton Reads a Book a Week on Google or whatever, it, it pops up. Lastly, pay the podcast forward to a family member, a coworker, church member, you know, cellmate, hostage, person you're currently doing surgery on, or that person you just sold a hot dog to, or all of the above. Uh, every listen is appreciated. Above all else, thank you again for listening. You're, you really are fantastic, and I really do appreciate it. Please, by the way, um, do me one favor. For the love of God, read a book this week. Start one, you know, finish one. Um, don't let them die out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.